Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, when you lay your head down to sleep tonight, you might do so with a lingering hope that you'll have sweet and pleasant dreams. But so often they are bizarre, confusing, madcap adventures that we have that they make no sense at all. So why do we do it? What is it that causes hallucinations while we are unconscious? Well, Eric Howell is a neuroscientist, neurophilosopher and author of the novel The Revelations. He joins me now. Um, Welcome to the programme, Eric. Maybe we might start off uh, talking a little bit about why we we think we dream and, and what we can see inside the brain when we dream. What do we know is happening for sure? Yeah, certainly we have very good evidence that that people do dream. People have dream reports. If you wake them up in the middle of the night, which some unlucky experimenters do who have to stay up all night uh, to wake people up, uh, people will report that that they were in a dream uh, a significant amount of the time. The dreams are rather complex. They get more kind of fantastical and narrative as the night goes on. And what's going on in the brain is actually something that looks generally a lot like wake activity, although that picture has complexified a bit in the past decade or so. But very traditionally, um, dreaming is, is, is basically like your brain is in an awake state, although the what's called the neuromodulatory milieu, like kind of the, the background um, basis of neural activity is, is a bit different. But basically, uh, you're, you're cut off from, from input, you're, you're paralyzed, and your brain is kind of going through the motions. And there's this big question of why does this exactly happen? I mean, not only is it metabolically expensive, which evolution should be kind of sure to trim away if it can, but also it's quite dangerous, right? I mean, you're quite literally paralyzed and lying there waiting for some saber-toothed tiger to to come along. So there's this really big question of why do brains spend so much time in this strange state? But don't we have different brain waves um, when we're dreaming and when we're uh, awake? Don't different um, sort of frequency of brain waves happen um, that that are quite distinct when we're asleep and dreaming? To, to a degree, um, it's actually quite difficult. So the, the the standard way of looking at brain waves might be something like EEG, which is an electroencephalogram, which is measuring the brain waves coming from your scalp. And when you're in a deep, dreamless sleep, what's often happening is that there are these big slow waves that are traversing the cortex, and kind of everybody, all the neurons are shouting at once, and then they're all silent. And that very much shows up as obviously non-wake-like activity on an EEG. But in dreaming, it's actually very difficult. You need all sorts of kind of algorithms to look at the precise breakdown of frequencies, as you said. But from kind of a a visual high-level perspective, it does look a, a lot like wake, which makes a, which makes sense, of course, because you are having conscious experiences when you're dreaming. Yeah, but um, you're not getting any inputs. That you know, you're not feeling, hearing, smelling, or seeing um, anything when you're asleep. At least nothing that, that connects to your dream. Well, it's, it makes a little bit more sense when you actually look at the architecture of the cortex, which has a huge number of what are called kind of back connections. So actually most of the, you, we think, we, we use these metaphors and it 
kind of fools people into thinking that the brain is this like feed forward device where sensory inputs come in and they get processed and then eventually they're expressed in some behavior or motor output. But what's actually going on is, is basically this endless cyclone of activity that's that's constant, that's just running throughout the cortex. Some people, you know, try to figure out the the main routes through which it goes, and they call that the default mode network or so on. There's kind of these different ways to talk about it. But there is basically this endless activity. And actually, the sensory input that you get is basically just a small fraction of your total brain activity. And it's all in the interpretation <laughs> of this kind of minimum sensory information. Yeah. Like most of your perception is kind of based off of the stream of consciousness you're, you're already having. I guess that makes sense. But why then is our dream landscape so so surprising so often extreme at times dark uh, confusing and and jumbled up why why doesn't it um feel like normal daytime living well that's a very good question and like everything in biology there are kind of multiple ways with which we can answer it right we, we could try to answer it via some sort of mechanistic answer involving what what is you know because there are some differences between wake and, and dream of course uh so we could try to answer it in terms of what neurotransmitters are, are being used or if there's kind of parts of the cortex that are being more uh, inhibited and so on or we could try to answer that question as at an evolutionary level we could ask it's so strange. This seems such a strange thing for an organism to spend time on mm. these weird nightly hallucinations that could have been a short story written by Borges or Kafka. So why would it spend time on this at all? Why would it waste energy? And that brings us to the question of whether or not dreams have a functional cognitive purpose. And plenty of people, uh, particularly in the last you know, 150 years or so, have proposed you know, a various, a number of proposals. Those proposals are often kind of based in the uh, societal norms and ways of thinking at the time. Uh, like what? Oh, well, um, uh, an example might be the the Freudian notion of, of dreams and the unconscious, right? Like this is a time when, when Freud is making these big distinctions between the unconscious and the conscious. And so he thinks that dreams are this, you know, bridge in between the two. Um, if you, if you get more recently, uh, people began to use the metaphor of the computer to understand the brain. And in a computer, of course, you have very definite memories that are stored in a particular place. And so people began to wonder, maybe dreams are some sort of ephemeral epiphenomenal byproduct of the brain trying to store its daily memories. Mm. Um, and so people have kind of in interpreted dreams through the, the, the latest metaphor or technology. Right. Uh, yeah. Th that idea of dreams being a byproduct of the brain sorting out what it's learning today, that, that, that's definitely one theory I've heard, but that's not um, what you think is going on. Tell me about the overfitting hypothesis. This is based in, in an idea of, uh, of AI, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it makes me guilty of the exact same sort of reasoning that I was talking about before, where I'm looking at the latest technology, and in this case, it's deep learning. Uh, perhaps one advantage here is that deep learning is itself originally kind of modeled from and inspired by the cortex, right? So, so maybe there's a bit more of a, of a natural connection uh, than between something as, as kind of uh, uh, non-inspired by the cortex, like a, like a Turing machine or something. 
uh, the overfitted brain hypothesis is the idea that every organism as it's learning is in danger of learning too well. I know that that sounds originally strange, and that's probably because when you're thinking about it, you're thinking about it in the computer metaphor, which is that we want to store the data as best as possible. But when you look at how these big artificial neural networks that are now driving around cars and sorting the spam in your email, how they actually function, they are trained with data, which is kind of like their experience that they get. They get this training and then they're deployed. And it turns out that they are constantly in danger of this problem of not being able to generalize to new instances from the training data that they were given. Right. And what's actually going on is that they're memorizing the training data too well. And they think that all these little bits, like imagine that it's telling pictures of dogs and cats apart. And it just so happens that most of the pictures that you've taken of dogs are during the day. And most of the pictures of cats are in like a dim environment. And what the AI then figures out is, okay, I just, I want to pay attention to the, the day or night cycle, right? They're, they're kind of, they're just memorizing these pictures. And when you give them this new, like a new image, um, then they won't be able to kind of generalize appropriately. So you really learning is this counterbalance between uh, learning too well, memorization and generalization. And you have to find this delicate balance between the two. And mammals are incredibly good learners. I mean, mammals are, they're still better than, than, than AIs. Most AIs, in many cases, they can do one-shot learning. You can show a dog something once and it'll remember it. So mammals are incredible at this, which probably means if learning is in general this ubiquitous trade-off between memorization and generalization, that they're constantly in danger of erring too much on the side of memorization. And basically their understanding of the world, their, their, learn, their model of the world becomes overfitted to their daily life. So it seems to me you're sort of saying that um, if, if, you, if you basically give it just the information and say that's the whole world, that's the whole universe, then it can't it can't deal with unexpected um, situations. And, and, and is that what then the, the sort of the idea that the dreaming is sort of throwing in random stuff to help us deal with unexpected and sort out the world a bit better? Yeah, precisely. It's, 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 a, it's a chance to depart from what might be a very stereotypical routine. Um, <laughs> and I say that, that that's probably true both of humans but also, you know, beavers or something, right? Like you go out, you build your dam every day, nothing much happens, right? Um, you know, life can get boring for, for all organisms and it can get repetitive. And, you know, you there's no, we, we, we have all these like regimented notions, like you go and you learn at school. Well, learning never stops ever. You, you can't turn off learning in the brain. It, it's constantly occurring. It's occurring when you watch a TV show. It's occurring when you're in school. It's occurring when you're out of school. And, and the same is true for, for, for all mammals. So what that means is that your brain is constantly being sculpted by your daily experiences. And it's constantly in danger of becoming too specific or too, um, it's kind of, it's kind of in danger of, of learning something too well and getting hung up on the details when it does that. And people can, uh, often relate to this. Like if you take up a new task, um, like uh, skiing, or if you start playing a new computer game uh, and you play it a lot, what you'll often find is, first of all, that your ability or performance will plateau. So you only get so good at it the first day you do it. Second, you'll find that if you go to bed at night, 
if you've done it a lot that day, you'll often dream about it. And third, uh, you'll often perform better and break your plateau uh, the next day. And this is generally pretty replicable and also very kind of anecdotally back, backed up. A lot of people have experienced uh, things like this. Yeah. And, and what I think is going on there is that dreams resemble these techniques that people use in deep learning. Uh, things that are like dropout or domain randomization. These are technical terms uh, for this general idea of data augmentation. And in data augmentation, what you're doing is you're feeding the the deep learning system data, but you're changing it, you're warping it. Imagine it's like a self-driving car. And then very occasionally, it just finds that there are black spots all over its vision. And it still has to kind of navigate the world despite there being black spots. Mm. That's something called dropout. Um, I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit here, obviously, but that's basically what, what, what dropout is. And similarly, when you're dreaming, and this seems to generalize the performance, because what is it doing? It's, it's telling you, it's telling the car, don't pay too much attention to the details. It doesn't really matter where these black spots are. Yes, maybe if it's, if it's exactly over a stop sign, that's bad, but it's over half a stop sign. That's actually good for it to know because yeah, sometimes stop signs are a bit occluded while mm. you're driving and you got to pick it out from behind the tree and so on. So it's generalizing their concept of a stop sign. Yeah, stop signs can be behind things. They, you know, they, they can be they, they can be occluded and so on. And I think that the same is going on when we're dreaming because we have this very low resolution version of the world where, very, where there's a lot of category breaking and strange things happening. And it's just shaking us out of our rut of, uh, of our daily lives. If that was the case, is that not something that we would easily be able to prove? Um, or, or is is understanding what exactly is going on a very difficult thing to to apply experimental neuroscience to? Yeah, that that's a great question. Uh, I it does seem as if it would be easy, doesn't it? But it actually turns out to be to be quite difficult. Uh, so first of all. Uh, one has to show some, you know, most of these effects, like the effects of sleep on learning, they're things that are taken for granted in neuroscience. But if you actually go look at the papers or try to go do an experiment yourself, you'll find that the effect sizes are maybe not that great. So you're already dealing with some statistical power problems. And then second of all, in the overfitted brain hypothesis, uh, what matters is not so much that you dream every night, it's that you were dreaming during periods of intense learning. Uh, so it's kind of hard to set those up in real life. Like, like you know, like some things that we might do would be to stick participants in a, in a VR experience where they're running like a maze in VR for hours in a day, right? And then we have to track them when they go to sleep and, and use all sorts of... Uh, you know, complicated uh, neuroimaging to track them when they're asleep. Uh, and then still, have you clearly ruled out the compound? So, you know, un unfortunately, proving anything, the, the reason why there are still so many hypotheses hanging around dreaming, and there are a lot, hmm. uh, is simply because it's actually very difficult to, to, to falsify them. It's, it's one of the harder parts of empirical neuroscience, because unlike in wake activity, you can't just immediately ask someone or probe or, you know, show someone a visual illusion and they can report back to you. It's much more difficult to get, you know, direct report out of dreams. In fact, yeah. there's a sense in which it's impossible. You have to wait for them to end. So it is actually quite difficult, which is why I lean more towards the, let's just come up with an elegant theory that hopefully explains a lot of the data that we have. And then we can go from there.
Yeah, this is an idea that you've sort of been working into your um, your book as well. It's the the, the novel, the revelations, uh, and um, I love the idea that perhaps um, we're doing this compensating for um, for for overfitting, as you call it, um, during the day by consuming so much fiction. That the fiction is a way of us being exposed to different ideas, so that our our brains function better. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's an analogy that I find fascinating. I'm someone who grew up uh, in his mother's independent bookstore. So I was around fictions, reading fictions, fictions, you know, paid for my college education, right? But it's like, why do humans love fiction so much? They're, they're lies. They're things that never happened. It's so strange. But wait a minute, that's exactly what dreams are like. So I thought maybe, maybe if, if we can explain the evolutionary purpose of dreams, we might have a very better understanding of the cognitive utility of learning about what happened at Hogwarts, even though, of course, Hogwarts doesn't exist and everything that happens there is in some sense a lie. So it has to have some some sort of effect. And maybe the effect is that we live in a very complex world. Humans are learning all the time. And if you basically lived your life without fictions, you would be becoming overfit. And so there's this kind of long-term cognitive utility. And it's certainly something I try to put into my, my own fiction. You know, as, as you mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm a novelist myself as well as a scientist. And it's always a little bit, you know, it's dangerous to use science too much in a novel, but it's always a little bit in the back of my mind that you really don't want to make plots too stereotypical or too easy to predict or, or too boring because the whole point of experiencing fiction is that you're getting something that's that's interesting mm. and different and maybe that kind of gives us a, a an objective measure of aesthetics right because if if something really is just kind of schlock or super stereotyped uh and we've all kind of experienced movies like that maybe you you have like a good objective reason to be like this is bad art because it's not gonna help with anybody's overfitting Right. It's going to make you more fit, overfitted, right? Yeah, that, that to me is quite an elegant little solution. But, but um, of course, um, more research needs to be done to fully understand what's going on. But I, but I like the idea. Eric Well, uh, author of The Revelations, neuroscientist and neurophilosopher. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.